Hello fellow Kentuckians and other friends and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie and joining me as always back again is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing very well. Glad to have you back. We had a good time without you, though. We had uh, four guests while you were missing, uh, and lots of great, lots of great ladies running for office. I feel like both both times you were gone, I had like somebody from Madison County who's running for office, and then somebody running for Senate. So uh, there you go. That's who we that's who we talked to when you were gone. Did you check out any of the interviews uh, while you were on vacation? No, I haven't yet. I I'm behind on all my podcasts because I like just read books all week. It was wonderful. Sometimes you got to take a vacation from your podcast. It's true. It's true. And yeah. I, we, we get that for listeners. You know, sometimes you don't listen every week. That's fine. You can keep, we're still here. You can check out all the way back to 2016 if you want to check it out. But And Jasmine will be doing that, I'm sure. So <laughs> uh, we have lots of stuff to talk about this week. Our interview this week is with Catherine Leonard, who is running for office in Hardin County. She's running for State House District 25. That includes most of E-Town, some of the area north of there, including South Radcliffe. She talked to us about why she got into the race. Um, she's a She was a young Democrat. She was involved in the Young Democrats. I think she still is. Um, and, and she talked about that. She talked about her experience working at a small business while also having a full-time job. Interesting stuff. So definitely check that out. Jasmine, what do you think about Catherine Leonard? I like her because I think she's a really no-nonsense candidate. Like, (laughs) she knows what she cares about. She's smart. She knows what she wants to do. And that's all there is to it. Um, And it's also a lesson in if you express your disappointment in um, your district or, you know, wherever you live for not fielding a candidate in a race, that's... That's a really good way to end up running yourself. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A little bit of a spoiler for why she's running, but yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So be careful out there if you uh, live in a district without a candidate. Um, But I'm glad she stepped up to do it because this, this is an open seat. It's an open seat. It's a district that Democrats are going to have to compete in. It's a it's a small it's you know, when the Republicans redrew the map, they basically took away all of the small city districts and split all the cities into like three and four districts. Um, and, and this is E-Town is one of the most whole cities, even though it was still split in two. Um, most of E-Town is still within one district. So, um, yeah, best of luck to, to Catherine Leonard. But before we get to our interview with her, Jasmine, you missed some big news while you were gone. Uh, Kelly Craft did decide to run mm-hmm. for office. Martina Jackson and I talked very briefly about that last week, but we have lots and lots of more information about Kelly Craft, who she is, where she comes from, what she's doing, what she's done in the past, where I'm going to talk about that. We also didn't talk much while you were gone, but news did happen around Louisville policing, especially as it relates to um, the police officers or former police officers who were arrested in that federal case. Um, So Jasmine's going to be bringing us much more information about that. And we also have a few quick hits. So all that being said, let's go ahead and get started. Jasmine, what did you think last Wednesday when Kelly Craft announced that she was starting a campaign for governor? Uh, I guess I didn't have a ton of, you know, thoughts about it. Like I wasn't surprised or anything because people have been talking about Kelly Craft running for governor for two years at least. Yeah, absolutely. There had been years of speculation, absolutely, about whether or not she was going to enter the race. And and one of the things that I think made me think she might not do it is the fact that there are already four serious Republican contenders, three of whom have been elected statewide already. Um, and Yeah, she- I, I kind of thought that 
once everyone kind of entered the race all at once. Um, but then she kind of, she kept putting herself out there. You mm -hmm. know, she, she was trying to get close to Donald Trump at the Derby and she's active on Twitter. She bought the $5 million ham at the <laughs> <laughs> breakfast a couple weeks ago. So I just felt like it was bound to happen. Yeah. Well, you were right. Uh, you were correct. I was less correct about that. So that that's something to know. Um, let's talk about her. Kelly Craft, who sometimes has been known as Kelly Knightcraft or just Kelly Knight, who was born Kelly Guilfoyle. <laughs> so it's kind of tough to track what she's doing because she's had a lot of different names through the years. Um, she was born in Lexington and raised in Glasgow. Her father, and that's in Barron County, down in southern Kentucky, uh, close to Bowling Green. Um, her father was a veterinarian, and apparently, once upon a time, he was the Democratic chairman in in Barron County. So that's an interesting fact. Of course, I'm sure the Democratic Party, when her father was active, was a significantly different thing than it is today. Um, she did release an opening campaign video and talked, to quite, talked quite a bit about her father, saying that her father's life was, quote, built on a promise that if you lived by faith, worked hard, did right by your neighbor, here in Kentucky, anything is possible, unquote. The whole opening video is quite a bit like that, a lot of, like, soft focus shots of rural Kentucky with soft yet driving music and a speech that really didn't say much of anything. So, um, <laughs> uh, Jasmine, I don't know. I So they talked about her, her campaign video on uh apod latcha our friends over uh there and and they said it was a good video but jasmine what did you think did you think it was an impressive video did you get a chance to see it much i mean what did you think about it when you watched it i thought that it was very well produced but like you said like there it doesn't say much about policy at all it was just it was just like fluff to me and i guess knowing her it we know that she's very rich, mm -hmm. right? And it didn't, it didn't really seem like her. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, like not super authentic. Right. No. No. And I don't think it's designed to be. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that's that's kind of what it, it it may have done its job, except for that maybe it also just comes off as disingenuous to those of us who know, and also is able to to you know, there's a lot of holes that can be poked into it. Uh, yeah, and someone kind of spoiled that i don't remember who it was but a reporter tweeted weeks ago they shared pictures of her with like farmers in barron county <laughs> and so they were like this looks like she's filming a campaign video here yeah. and and that's what it was yeah well there it is yeah check out the video i mean just to see it it, it was kind of like i don't know it was it was it was weird i, I didn't I, I didn't think it was very good i didn't think it was very good i thought there are other republicans in the race who've had better opening videos i'll, I'll put it that way i don't um, know if i've even seen any of the other ones other than daniel cameron yeah i don't know if ryan quarles even had a video but i felt like his opening Maybe just the speech he gave or, like, the way that he introduced his campaign felt better. Um, Kelly Craft had an event yesterday. Um, I don't know. That didn't get a lot of coverage, really. I feel like her rollout's been a little slower. Maybe it stayed in the news a little bit longer. Yeah, I don't know. I felt I felt like Ryan Corals probably had the best launch of anybody, except for maybe Daniel Cameron, who launched with an endorsement from Donald Trump. So that may be yeah. the most effective way to do it. So I've, I've seen quite a few pictures from her 
launch event and it, it did look well attended yeah yeah but but also just to kind of follow up on your point it, it, it seemed well attended but it also seemed a little like produced uh it didn't feel like the i felt like maybe like a wine and cheese type crowd who was just like there to be happy for their friend kelly and not like a lot of people who were like we're ready for kelly or whatever like that like i don't know her and, and maybe you know that's kind of her her supporters and we'll kind of get into that a little bit so you know kelly craft's Public history as a GOP activist goes back to at least 2004 when she was given the title of pioneer by George W. Bush because she was able to bundle more than $100,000 for his campaign. And bundling just means like going out there, getting rich people to give you money and then giving all that money to the campaign. In return, Bush uh, made her an alternate delegate to the United Nations in 2007. Every year, the United States sends a delegation to the United Nations. It's full of, like, diplomats and people with important jobs and then alternates who are mostly just, like, campaign contributors. And that's what happened with Kelly Craft back in 2004. Yeah, and and I think George W. Bush was, like, one of the first people to utilize that, like, you get a cool title if you give me a bunch of money. There's, like, a lot of people throughout the years who are, like... I don't remember. A pioneer is probably the most popular one because that's like $100,000. Okay. Kelly Craft's political career, I think, like you alluded to already, Jasmine, it didn't take off until she became attached to Joe Craft. So that that's, you know, when you talk about Kelly, you got to talk about Joe. They are connected, at least politically. And they're married, so they're, they're connected in lots of ways. Uh, Kelly Craft has been married twice before she married Joe Craft. First, she was married to a man named David Moros, who's a private equity capitalist. He recently led a major investment into the Magic Spoon cereal brand. So they advertise a lot on other podcasts. So if David Moros, if you're mad at your ex-wife for running for governor of Kentucky, you look us up. You can give us some of that podcast money. We would be appreciative of that. <laughs> Yeah, so that was her first. I'll take some of the cereal too, or just the cereal. Absolutely, (laughs) yeah, totally. Just send it our way. Yeah, so that was her first husband. Her second husband is a man named Judson Knight, who's an orthodontist in Lexington. She has one child from both marriages. Um, One of her kids actually started a political organization after the 2016 election that she said was born out of the cry for help that was that election. So that was kind of interesting that I discovered, uh, especially given that Kelly Craft had such a major role in the Trump administration later. Joe Craft is the president and CEO of Alliance Resource Partners. That's a coal company. His net worth is estimated to be $1.4 billion. That's an old estimate. It's from 2012. But, you know, even if he spent like, even if he spent like $10 million, no, Whatever. He's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of money. It doesn't matter if that estimate is old. Uh, it doesn't matter if he built the Joe Craft Center. And he could have like basically bought the city of Lexington twice over and still had a lot of money left over. So, uh, yeah, that's him. That's Joe Craft. He's got a bunch of money. Joe Craft was known uh, for a long time for his political pragmatism. He donated mostly to Democrats in Kentucky as of 2012, which is like a lot of stuff was starting to be written about him in 2012. He started to be a more important player. He started to be more and more involved in Kentucky athletics. Coal politics started having more and more impact on our uh, our state at that time. Uh, the, the industry started to enter a lot of turmoil. And, and so there was a lot of stuff being written about Joe Craft in those days. So, yeah, uh, in 2012... Um, Joe Kraft was giving to Democrats who were mostly conservative and pro-coal at the time, and then he also gave heavily, heavily to Republicans on the national level. He gave more than $5 million to groups trying to elect Mitt Romney president in 2012. Mitt Romney did not become president in 2012. Uh, that was uh, 
Not all that happened to Joe Kraft that year, though. 2012 was a pretty momentous year for both Kelly Knight and Joe Kraft. They were co-chairs of the Mitt Romney campaign in Kentucky together. I don't know where they met, but they were just Kelly Knight and Joe Kraft, uh, co-chairs of the Mitt Romney campaign. And then, you know, four years later, they were married. So I don't know. Maybe that's where they met. Uh, Who knows? That uh, could have been a a love story that Mitt Romney can take credit for. (laughs) Um, It's... It's really hard when we're talking about Joe Kraft. It's really hard to overstate how important the politics of coal were to Kentucky between 2000 and 2015. If that's not a time that you were active in politics in Kentucky, it's really hard to overstate how important coal politics were in this state. Um, that, That was by far, that issue was by far the biggest player in Republicans' rise during that, those years, like 2000 and 2015, which were good years for Republicans, and they were making steady progress cutting into the Democratic majority during those years. But then the dam fully broke with Donald Trump. That was, of course, that was what pushed it over the edge. But I don't think without really the the buildup of that issue around coal during those years, the Republican Party would have been nearly as successful. And as coal politics became more partisan, coal magnates became more partisan, too. And we have this effect of people like Joe Kraft basically becoming just hardcore Republicans when in decades prior, they had given pretty much equally to both Republicans and Democrats. Jasmine, I know that like you were pretty active. You were paying very close attention. We were friends um, during a good chunk of that time. Uh, but but I mean, do you, do you have anything else to say about how coal politics were back in back in that those days? I remember it was kind of like the issue during the time that we were in college, and that was really when you started seeing like the friends of coal license plates and everything. And I just always associate all of that with the crafts. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's they were tightly uh, consolidated with that. With uh, I remember being like an environmental activist during those years and being a big Kentucky basketball fan, and then getting like the Wildcat right. Coal and Lodge. That's what I was going to say. And then they like rebuilt the lodge where the basketball players lived and named it the Wildcat Coal Lodge. Yeah, I remember one time there was like an open practice for students, and I was like, "Oh, this is so cool! I'm going to get to go see the basketball team." And they gave away free T-shirts, and they were like a wild cat in like coal miner gear like dunking a basketball in a coal mine i was like this is really wild this is crazy stuff so that <laughs> that was the intersection of, of coal politics in in kentucky back in those days oh fun fact though like john calipari's dad was a coal miner or like his grandfather somebody in his family he like tells the story coal is important to him sure whatever um Okay, we talked a little bit about Joe Kraft, um, his connection to coal, how that made him really important to the Republican Party as a really rich guy that likes Republicans because Republicans like coal. Back in Kentucky, Joe Kraft and Kelly Kraft were major supporters of Matt Bevin. Um, a, a tweet from Matt Bevin was the only way I can confirm they were married in 2016. I had conflicting sources, one that said they were married in 2015, one that said they were married in 2016. I was like, I don't know. And then I saw a tweet from Matt Bevin in April of 2016 saying, congratulations to my friends Joe and Kelly Kraft on their wedding day. So confirmed from, <laughs> from Matt Bevin, of all people, that that's when they were married. Um, the, the Krafts were co-chairs of Matt Bevin's inaugural committee um and they have been big supporters of mitch mcconnell as well um that that also stands in pretty stark contrast because joe Kraft had been a supporter uh, at least on some level I, I mean i don't know who he voted for but he did like have like give some money to steve Bashir um back before uh you know the 2015 election which you know was a uh, 
you know, that that was a big one for, for Republicans and supporters of coal. Um, I think it represented a big swing for, for that whole industry. It should, yeah, we already talked about this a little bit, um, but the, the crafts are just like really deeply entrenched in the athletics department at the University of Kentucky. Um, we talked about the Wildcat Coal Lodge, but the Joe Craft Center is where the basketball team practices. It's still called that. When it was named that originally, I thought that was a dead guy, but no, Joe Craft, very much still alive. He named a huge complex after himself. I guess they might have named it after him. Uh, so that's that's cool. I mean, Jasmine, what would if there, if there was a Jasmine Smith complex, what would it be um probably some kind of like youth community center or something i would say like legal services clinic for your for young people maybe i don't know could just or just yeah youth yeah. center. yeah i was trying to think i mean something that like keeps kids out of the juvenile justice system. It would be something related to that. That that works. That works. I think that that's cool. I mean, what about you, Robert? Oh, it would probably be some sort of like l- large supercomputer or like data yeah. center or something like <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah, open data related thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be honest with you, though, like the Kentucky basketball practice facility would still be a good one. It's one I would take for sure. (laughs) I think both of us would would be cool with that. Fine ideas. Um, And and as Kelly Craft's campaign has kind of ramped up, uh, Kentucky football coach Mark Stoops, uh, I I don't know if it's an indication of support, but he liked her tweet. And that made news, at least in some of my circles um, that, you know, she was running for governor and he, he liked it. Lots and lots of athletic personalities are very close with the craft crafts. I, I heard about like a Republican fundraiser that Joe Craft brought Demarcus Cousins and Josh Harrelson to, who are former Kentucky basketball players. So, so there you go. That's like something that that's very very important to them that they spend a lot of money on. On the presidential level, Joe and Kelly Craft were originally supporters of Marco Rubio in 2016, but his campaign died. Uh, Jasmine, I don't know if you were watching this debate, but Chris Christie basically like ran Marco Rubio out of the race uh, by pointing out that he kept saying the same thing over and over again. <laughs> Do you remember that? I don't really remember that specifically. I remember there was one where he drank water. <laughs> oh, that was that was a response yeah, was that to the, the state one? of the union. Yeah, <laughs> no, the uh, no. Well, the Chris Christie one was incredible because because. Uh, Marco Rubio kept responding to every question with the exact same weird turn of phrase. It's like, let's not be deceived or something like that. He said like the same thing like four times. And then Chris Christie was like, you keep saying the same thing over and over again. You don't know what you think. You just repeat what people tell you. And then he like Marco Rubio, like literally in response to that, said the same phrase over again. He's like, you just said it again. And it was like (laughs) by the next week, Marco Rubio had dropped out of the presidential race. Uh, So that that was their original, uh, you know, person that they supported. Um, but then the story that is told publicly is that the, the crafts rece- received assurances from Donald Trump that he would not try to oust Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan from their leadership positions as Senate Minority Leader, I guess Majority Leader, and then uh, Paul Ryan, who was at the time Speaker of the House. Um, and, and, you know, they once they received those assurances, they became backers of Donald Trump in 2016. Of course, later, Donald Trump would try to have both of them removed um, and Paul Ryan quit. <laughs> So, um, you know, Mitch McConnell's still there. So, so I guess they were successful on the one they cared more about. 
So we'll get into everything that happened to Kelly Craft during the Trump administration, but it should be mentioned that Trump named Scott Pruitt as head of the EPA, and that was kind of the big gift that Joe Craft got during the Trump administration. Um, Scott Pruitt was the EPA administrator until mid-2018 when he resigned due to a slew of management and ethics issues, massive, massive national uh, investigative reporting from either the Washington Post or the New York Times about how much money he'd been spending um, just inappropriately taking really expensive flights, that kind of stuff. Um, Anyway, Scott Pruitt was the Oklahoma Attorney General and sued the EPA constantly while he was in that position, mostly about energy issues. Of course, those are issues that Joe Craft cares a lot about. Pruitt and Joe Craft both have deep ties to both Kentucky and Oklahoma. Uh, Scott Pruitt's grandfather, I think, played basketball for Kentucky, so that's weird. I didn't know that till I was researching this. Um, And and, in Joe Craft's Alliance Energy, the, the company he's the CEO of, is actually headquartered in Tulsa. So they had this interesting Kentucky-Oklahoma connection. Uh, they were actually both spotted together at a UK basketball game once. So they're they're pretty tight. That was the big gift that that Joe Kraft got from from Donald Trump after you know giving him lots of money to run for president. So what did Kelly Kraft, the person who this is about, uh, what did she get? In 2017, she was nominated to be the ambassador to Canada. She was confirmed by a voice vote in August of that year. Um, You know, given the unique nature of some of the other Trump appointees to ambassadorships, um, I think the Senate was glad to have somebody who had been like a Romney Republican to that spot. Like, I think that was (laughs) the best possible case with somebody like Kelly Craft, who seemed kind of normal. Jasmine, I'm sure that you remember that time and how high stress it was that like so many very strange individuals were being confirmed to like very high positions inside mm-hmm. the government. Yeah. Yeah. Wild, wild stuff. So yeah, she was just like, oh, this lady, she seems normal. I, I don't know if she's going to do a good job or not, but uh, this, she's fine. fine. I guess. That's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in 2019, she was in line for a very significant promotion. Nikki Haley left uh, her post as the UN um ambassador and they needed a new person to do it and they settled on kelly Kraft. she was nominated to be the ambassador of the united nations so the senate democrats did file a minority report on her nomination and they revealed that kelly Kraft spent 58 percent of her time as ambassador to canada outside of the country mostly in oklahoma and kentucky which are the places where joe Kraft is uh, you know tightly connected to and a lot of the time she spent like flying in his private jet back and forth between those places. So wasn't a very active ambassador to Canada, uh, but regardless, still got a pretty significant promotion. Um, the Minority Report also slammed Kraft for being given this position without any diplomatic experience outside of the Trump administration, saying that her main qualification was, quote, contributing more than a million dollars to Donald Trump's presidential campaign, unquote. She had, of course, been the alternative delegate in 2007, to the United Nations, but that's not really all that relevant of experience. I think that that's just maybe one or two steps above like touring the building. So that is that was the extent of her uh, expertise when she went into uh, the UN as the ambassador. She was confirmed 56 to 34, highly partisan vote. I think like five Democrats ended up supporting her. Most Democrats didn't. But I will say that foreign policy towards the end of the Trump presidency was one of the areas where the administration was the most successful. I don't think the policy was all that great, but they were actually able to implement something which was not something that they were able to do successfully in a lot of other areas. 
Kelly Craft was a cabinet-level official working on foreign policy when the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Morocco established diplomatic relations with Israel. That was a major coup for the Trump administration, something that they had been pushing for for a really long time, um, and, and they were successful in actually getting that done. That was something that, you know, that's diplomatic relations in, in the Arab world with Israel is one of the most fraught issues across the whole world, and it's really hard to have success for anybody. Um, so, you know, just getting your policy implemented, even if you don't support it, um, that, that shows that, you know, somebody's doing some effective administration somewhere. She also met with a Taiwanese president in early 2021 at the very, very end of the Trump presidency. And I will say, like, support for Taiwan has been something that has continued from the United States government throughout, uh, through, though, you know, the House, the Senate, and the, um, the presidency have changed hands. Uh, since the Trump administration started. Um, and, and, you know, you even saw, like, Nancy Pelosi, the U.S. Speaker of the House, like, flying to Taiwan. So, like, increased support for Taiwan is something that, um, you know, she really kind of set the tone for and has been followed by Democrats after that. So, you know, did she do a good job? Some good stuff happened, or, like, at least some effective stuff happened. She was able to to implement policy um, at while she was in office as the U.N. Uh, ambassador. I will say, though... January 6th, very momentous day at the time, um, at the time that there were a lot of Trump administration officials that were resigning saying, you know, we cannot abide being a supporter of this person who has, um, you know, fomented a an insurrection against the United States. You saw Elaine Chao, who was the, who is the wife of Donald, or is the wife of Mitch McConnell, and also at the time, I think she was the Secretary of Transportation, either that or Labor. She was Labor for Bush, and she was Transportation for Trump. She resigned her position. I, I think she, that's she's to be commended for that. Kelly Craft was one of the the cabinet members who stuck it through. She stayed through January sixth, stayed in her position, and did not leave until Trump left. Uh, just a couple of, of weeks later. Speculation that Kelly Craft would run for governor started swirling as soon as she was made ambassador to Canada, and it was thought during most of the Trump administration that his endorsement was hers to lose if she ran. However, you know, as Andy Bashir kind of solidified himself, he, I think, was way more successful than a lot of people predicted that he would be when he was first elected. Public polls have shown him to be very, very popular this year, and many people started thinking Kelly Craft might, ju- might not jump into the race. I definitely thought that Jasmine, you just shared. You did not. You were. You were. You knew it. You knew it ahead of time that she was gonna, gonna get into the race. And then, kind of like as the field started filling out, I thought it was less and less likely that Kelly Craft would jump in. And when Daniel Cameron came through with the Trump endorsement, I thought almost certainly she wasn't going to run. That seemed to be something that she was really banking on if she was going to run, um, which is you know evidence that you shouldn't listen to me and you should instead listen to Jasmine, who um, was able to cut through all that noise. I mean, I. I don't remember. I may have expressed like that I didn't think she'd run after Daniel Cameron got in, but after I saw like the step she was taking after that, I was like, okay, no, I, I think she is. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, I I don't you know. Both Ryan Quarles and Daniel Cameron have wrapped up a lot of endorsements, but there are other people who have endorsed Kelly Craft. Major ones include James Comer, the United States congressperson from District 1, and then also Max Wise, who's a, who's a state senator, widely expected to become her lieutenant governor nominee if she gets the nomination. So he has kind of been trotting around all over the place talking about how great Kelly Craft is. 
So, Jasmine, I don't know. Kelly Craft genuinely seems to be like a more moderate Republican, a person with a lot of affection for politicians like Mitt Romney and George W. Bush, who promised to cut taxes and help out rich people and maybe just start one or two wars. Um, I don't know. Uh, that That's kind of the person that she seems to be. But one thing about her is that she has shown that she has the stomach to hang in with the likes of Donald Trump no matter what. Like, she sat through January 6th, Watch that insurrection happen. Watch those people come in, sit in the Capitol, break down doors and windows and all that sort of stuff while hanging up Trump banners everywhere, be marched out of there and was like, seems okay. No problems here. I'm going to stay in this administration. Um, that's, you know, what it takes to be a Republican in 2022, I think. And she's she's able to do it. She's able to hang in. It'll yeah, be- and like, it seemed like intentionally tried to like get that photo op next to him mm-hmm. um, in that like picture from the Derby. Yeah, yeah, definitely seemed to be pursuing his endorsement after after he left office with, you know, but the thing is like, so are all the Republicans. I, you know, I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to see what lane she kind of decides to occupy in this race. You know, yeah. <laughs> can you be like super Trumpy and moderate at the same time? I don't I don't think so. But it does look like she's kind of going to try by like not talking about anything. That seems to be what she's done so far. But the thing is that Kentucky does have a pretty significant history of electing rich people with not that much substance. Um, there are a lot of governors who kind of fit that mold. I'm not going to name any names, but, uh, Austin Horn has a piece in the Herald leader on September 7th, where Al Cross lists about four or five governors who are in, in that same mold. They're all Democrats, of course, as most, uh, governors from Kentucky are. Um, but yeah, this isn't something that's unusual in Kentucky history to have uh, a governor like, like Kelly Craft. Um, I don't know, Jasmine, my my handicapping of the race as of right now is that she doesn't stand much of a chance to win the Republican primary because there's other strong candidates who are strongly occupying ideological lanes and are going to be able to get their message out. I don't think she's going to be able, with her lack of substance, even with just an incredible amount of money to, to you know, cut through um, people who are making strong ideological stances and people who, uh, you know, candidates that people already know and have a message. But she has a ton of money, and that goes a long way. Um, if, if her money does win the day, I think she would be a very good candidate for Republicans to run against Andy Bashir, um, because I do think he depends heavily on moderate voters who lean Republican. And I think that if they see somebody who is like, oh, this is maybe like Andy Bashir, but maybe a Republican, that's maybe somebody who could cut into Andy Bashir's uh, popularity. I think Andy Bashir is probably favored against everybody that's running, but of course, this is still a very Republican state, so it's it's likely to be a very, very, very competitive race no matter what. Um, I don't know, Jasmine, what do you think Kelly Craft's chances are both in the primary and in the general if she makes it there? I have a really hard time figuring out where she fits, I think, but I definitely think she has a chance, but I'm not sure if she's the favorite. I might... I didn't think this before, but I think it could be Daniel Cameron. I don't know. I do think she could do well because of money. And also, I think that like her alignment with UK is something. Yeah. There are probably a lot of voters out in the state who are not super politically engaged, but know her name because of UK sports. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, that will vote for her. And and so I think that that gives her a platform 
um, that she may not have had otherwise. I don't think people are like, oh, that's the ambassador to Canada. <laughs> you know, like, I think I think people will know her for that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I I think I'd put her maybe like my second favorite. I That's such an interesting thing to think about, because I think kind of Daniel Cameron, Ryan Quarles, Kelly Craft, those three are kind of fighting for the same voters, right? You kind of got Savannah Maddox yeah. on her own yeah. in that lane. That, um, you're right. And, and, and we talked about that, too, how how that could happen and how Savannah Maddox easily becomes the favorite. Yep. Um, so, I don't know. I honestly, like, don't feel like I could even make an educated guess on what will happen in the primary. I mean, I can make a guess and I can say it's educated, but it's probably wrong. And my guess would be <laughs> that, like, you know, if this if this race is nationalized, the Republican primary is nationalized and Trump's endorsement becomes what really wins the day, then you're right. It's Daniel Cameron's to lose because he has Trump in his corner. You know, if if Trump cuts an ad for Daniel Cameron, can you imagine how successful that would be for him? Like, he'd probably mm -hmm. um, be able to ride that to victory. But the thing is, if Ryan Quarles, who has a massive amount of support among the judge, exec judge executives and legislators in Kentucky, like, if that is what kind of wins the day, I think he's likely to win. You know, if people are like, well, what does Donald Trump have to do with the, the governor of Kentucky? I don't care what he thinks. What I care about are what my state leaders think. I think that's what's going to benefit Ryan Quarles. What's more likely to happen? I think the nationalism People care more about national politics than they do about state politics. <laughs> not, you know, not the people that listen to my old Kentucky podcast, but everybody else. Uh, that that is kind of how it goes. Um, so I think you're dead on in saying that like Daniel Cameron has a really good chance. But here's the thing. I mean, Kelly Craft is a curveball into the race. Like, she's just such a wild curveball into this because is she going to cut away from Daniel Cameron by, like, tying herself to Trump? You know, she's going to be able to cut plenty of ads with her standing right next to Donald Trump because she was in his cabinet. Like, that is mm -hmm. um, that is something that will be able to cut away from, from Daniel Cameron. But at the same time, she also has some significant support on the state level with, with you know, Max Weiss, who's a leader in the legislature, and Jamie Comer, who's very popular in Western Kentucky. So, I don't know i think you're right it is just kind of crazy to think about in wide open maybe after the election we'll get some republicans on here to like help us sort through all this just the nice ones though we'll, we'll see if we can find some nice ones <sighs> all right jasmine i mean well your other question was how do i think she would fare in the general against andy brashear mm -hmm. if she were to win and i maybe like six months ago i would have said that she would win but i do feel like now that we're kind of out of COVID restriction time um, and we've had, you know, these disasters yeah. in the state um, that Andy Bashir seems to have handled pretty well. Um, we've had these big economic development projects. I think he's more popular than he was six months to a year ago. And so I do think he could still win um, if if she comes out of the general against him. Yep. No, yeah. I, I think that's dead on. Um, I think Andy Bashir is in a really good position. I think a lot of the reasons why he's been successful is because he's faced a lot of crises. Um, but, I mean... Like, one after another. <laughs> yeah. And it's handled them all really deftly, I think. I mean, there's a lot to be said for that. You know, crises, crises are going to happen. And you really just hope that you have somebody like Andy Bashir sitting in the chair when it happens. So... 
you know, you take advantage of the opportunities that you get. And even though they may, may come wrapped in tragedy, you know, they are what they are. So that's that's what we're looking at. Whew, Jasmine, that was 30 minutes on Kelly Craft. Yeah. So let's get to talking uh, about some other stuff, which is Louisville policing updates. Lots of interesting, um, just kind of a lot of news that has happened around that. So yeah. tell us all about that. Well, mine is not three pages of notes, so uh, <laughs> I think it'll be shorter. Um, yeah, so we have several updates um, surrounding the officer's who were involved in killing Breonna Taylor. Um, so Joshua Jaynes' termination was upheld by Jefferson Circuit Court Judge Mitch Perry. Um, not related, but Mitch Perry was also the judge in the abortion case um, that's now at the Supreme Court. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Jaynes, of course, is the officer who is now charged um, federally with falsifying the warrant, um, but he was terminated prior to that. So we've talked about his um, termination and his appeal to the merit board. He appealed that to Jefferson Circuit Court. And then the next step is the Court of Appeals. And I believe his lawyer indicated that he would do that. Miles Cosgrove, um, one of the officers who was present and fired shots, the night that Brianna Taylor was killed has also appealed his termination to Jefferson circuit court. Um, but we don't have a ruling in that case. Kyle Meany, who was one of the officers recently federally charged, um, was also officially terminated when the indictments came down. Um, I think he had received like an intent to terminate letter. Um, and now he has been terminated and can appeal that to the merit board. Last week, um, people gathered at Jefferson Square Park, which was known during the protest as Injustice Square, um, to demand that the county attorney's office dismiss the remaining cases against protesters. So the county attorney is Mike O'Connell, and he responded with a statement saying that the remaining cases do not meet the criteria for dismissal. And... I will just note that he sets the criteria. <laughs> it's like this, these rules, which I made, uh, are not being followed, right? That's uh, by me. Yeah. Like, yeah, I have to follow the rules that I have set. Yeah, you can change the rules anytime you want to. Um, and he he absolutely could have dismissed these charges and chose not to, is what you're saying. Yeah, any case can be dismissed at the Commonwealth's discretion, but nobody else's. Um, so I've seen like some people on Twitter saying things like why doesn't the judge just dismiss these cases and they can't do that there is a rule of criminal procedure about that and there are lots of appellate opinions saying that judges don't have the discretion to dismiss cases for any reason Um, there are certain circumstances where they might be able to but um, just their discretion (laughs) isn't one of them only the commonwealth has that discretion Um, so the county attorney can but they don't meet his criteria. 70% of the cases were dismissed, which is good, um, but there are still about 170 cases left, which is quite a few. Yeah. Um, and, and we've talked a little bit on the show that a big handful of those are set to be tried together, which I think um, will be an absolute circus. It's crazy. Um, I mean, it's a bad idea. Yeah, there's not <laughs> like... We'll, uh, with all the different lawyers involved and all the uh, yeah it's just i don't even know how that's supposed to happen but whatever yeah. also kelly hannah goodlett one of the officers charged federally pled guilty and 
We had talked about this on the show. Um, we knew that she was going to. She faces up to five years in prison and up to a $250,000 fine and up to three years of supervised release at her sentencing. Her sentencing is tentatively scheduled for November 22nd, though the judge, Judge Rebecca Grady Jennings, noted that that date may get pushed back. And my guess for why that date may get pushed back is they may be wanting to push her sentencing past the trial for the other officers um, since she's agreed to testify against Joshua James and Kyle Meany. Their trials, along with Brett Hankison's, who's charged in a separate indictment, those are scheduled for October, but that's like a super quick trial date. So I would expect those to get continued, and maybe that's why her sentencing may also be continued. Yeah, her, I mean, obviously she, she reached some sort of plea where she's able to, like, get a lighter sentence or, like, lighter punishment than these other two officers because she's testifying against them. And if they sentenced her, she would basically have the reward in hand and then could do whatever she wanted to, like, in the trial. So you want those things to happen in that order? Is that, am I thinking about that correctly? Or did it, have I watched, like, too much Law & Order? There are definitely ways that you can protect a plea agreement with an agreement to testify after a sentencing. Um, but that's just my guess for why they're doing it that way. Um, I've seen it done both ways before I've seen a sentencing happen before, but that agreement can be revoked if they don't testify truthfully what, you know, to what they pled to. Um, and then I've also seen prosecutors asked to wait for sentencing until they've, you know, held up their end of the bargain. So it, it can go either way, I think, at least in state court. Um, so I'm, I'm sure we'll, we will likely not be talking about those trials in October because I'd, my guess would be that they get continued because that is a quick trial day. There may be additional discovery um, or pretrial motions that need to, be resolved so i'm not sure that that will happen that quickly um we did learn a lot from her plea agreement documents though um so there's there's some new information that i think some of it is pretty crazy um so one calmini conducted surveillance on the apartment and saw kenneth walker there um, not Jamarcus Glover, who was, the, you know, the subject of the search warrant. Yeah. Um, Kenneth and- Walker, Kenneth Walker's Brianna Taylor's boyfriend, who was the one that was living there, who fired the shots at the police officers. Jamarcus Glover was the person that the police were investigating that apparently she had dated. Previously. Yeah, she had dated previously. And like the police had tried to say that he was like receiving packages at this apartment. So that, that that's who the characters are, right? Right. Thank you for the catch up. We I've talked about this so many weeks for two years now. Yeah, but, it's just you know the, may, yeah. maybe some people haven't been listening that long. Um, so yeah, so surveillance was conducted as recently as two days before the warrant was executed. I don't know how many times, um, but Kenneth Walker was seen there, not Jamarcus Glover. And Kyle Meany also learned that Kenneth Walker had a concealed carry permit, um, but he didn't tell that information to detectives. Um, and 
why does that matter? Of course, that would make the the warrant execution more risky. Um, so whenever officers are going to execute a search warrant, um, they have like this risk matrix that helps them figure out like what level of risk and how they should execute a warrant. And that information that there's a person presumably staying there or going there that has a concealed carry permit, that would certainly increase the risk. The other piece of information, um, well, there's a couple. So one, Joshua Janes told Kelly Hannah Goodlett that if he went down, she would go down too, and that he pressured her to go along with his story, and she eventually buckled. Um, so this has to do with that um, garage meeting that happened where he wanted to meet with her so they could get their story straight. So yeah. it sounds a little bit threatening. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like like intimidation, basically. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, the pleadings revealed that officers also chose to present the warrants to Judge Mary Shaw because she would not closely scrutinize them. Um, they also chose to execute the warrant at Taylor's apartment because the quote was, these drug traffickers have a history of attempting to destroy evidence and have cameras. Um, and that the pleading also said that they didn't have any reason to believe that she was a drug trafficker. So I think the point there is like, if we'd gone to Jamarcus Glover's house or these other people that are involved, they're more likely to destroy evidence or have cameras. This person is actually unsuspecting. And so that's why we're doing it. Not because we believe that she traffics drugs. Yeah, that's like almost the fact that they don't know that they're coming is like a positive in their mind. And that ended up being what mm -hmm. created the danger in the first place. So, yeah, lots of, I mean, really bad policing here, it seems like uh, just really significant stuff that, you know, that they did not appropriately fill out the risk matrix. They should have known that there was going to be a gun on on site and been able to be prepared for that. Um, you know, they sought out a judge who wouldn't closely scrutinize them, which that's also seems really sketchy. Yeah. And then also after the fact that one of these officers, you know, intimidated the others and basically told them all that they needed to lie to keep their story straight. So, yeah. yeah and I think I think the fact that not, you know, not just the information about Kenneth Walker having the concealed carry, but the fact that an officer had been conducting surveillance and was seeing this other person there that really undermines the information in the warrant that they believe that Jamarcus Glover was still using this physical address and receiving packages there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just a, a lot of damning stuff. Yeah. I mean, thank goodness that the FBI got involved here. Right. I mean, this is just like some really, <laughs> yeah. yeah, really, really crazy stuff that would have just gone completely overlooked if Daniel Cameron had the last say. So we're late, but we do have some quick hits we want to talk about. One of these, I mean, this one probably deserves to be its own story, but we're really long, so we're going to make it a quick hit. Um, the, the Race for House in District 29 has had a very, very topsy-turvy uh, experience this year. So Kevin Bratcher is the incumbent in that seat. He's a Republican. This is a southeast Louisville seat. 
The original Democratic candidate was Suzanne Kugler. She filed to run in this race in late 2021 when the maps were redrawn because she, I mean, in my opinion, because she was uh, already a filed candidate, they drew her out of the district. So there was a ballot line for Democrats, but, um, but nobody to fill it. The Democrats worked really hard, found somebody who was willing to run, and that person's name was Matt Fott. Jasmine and I actually know Matt pretty well. We knew him from in, in college. I was really excited about his candidacy. Um, but it was announced uh, in the news a couple, uh, like last week sometime, that Matt Fott had not changed his voter registration from Republican uh, until after the change of the, the year into 2022. In order to be on the ballot for a party's ballot line, you have to be able to vote in that party's primary. And in order to vote in that party's primary, because this is Kentucky and our voter registration laws are nuts, you have to have been registered in that party before the year changes. So because Matt Fott changed his voter registration in January, he could not vote in the Democratic primary and therefore is being removed from the ballot. So that's bad enough. That's really annoying. You know, Matt Fott had been working really hard. He had been like getting campaign literature, raising money, doing a lot of work. And so now he's off. But but I think the idea that Democrats had was like, OK, we can get somebody different. And I, I mean, I'm even aware like there were a couple of people, at least one person who was like, I, I would have done it if Matt hadn't done it. But I was really glad that Matt stepped up. So there was somebody else that was going to be able to fill that ballot line with Matt going out of it. But Secretary of State Michael Adams said that will not be possible, that Democrats will now not have a ballot line because he's already certified who will appear on the ballot. And that happened in late August. So, um, I mean, I don't know how long Republicans were holding on to this information, but they basically <laughs> waited until after. First of all, they redistricted the original Democrat who wanted to run for the seat out of the seat to, to make it basically so that Kevin Bratcher would have an easier time. They thought that that meant that there was going to be no Democrat. The Democrats scrambled. They found somebody who was willing to run, willing to put in the effort at the last second to well, do it. And I think that they actually had to sue or. Yeah. They did because it was like on the ballot late in, yeah. in a couple of these like redistricted seats. They had to basically main, make it like they were like, is this person technically filed if they've been redistricted out? And the, the court said, yes, like if if somebody filed for this seat, even if they were redistricted out of it, that ballot line is still secured for that party. So they were able to say because Suzanne Kugler filed to run in District 29, that there is a Democratic ba uh, ballot line in District 29, and somebody that lives in District 29, as it is redrawn, is able to go into that ballot line. So that that's what happened there. They had to go through the entire court decision process to get that. Yeah, so they had to like do a lawsuit, find somebody at the last second who's willing to jump into that spot, found somebody, and then mm -hmm. Republicans basically and, waited, and then, yeah. And Matt fought, didn't file till April. Yeah. Um, so it, it took a while to make that happen. I, I do wish, I guess, that they figured that out before. Mm -hmm. um, so that is a bummer. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so... I mean, and Michael Adams, you know... We go back and forth. We give him accolades when he does good stuff, but his his office, the their like statement is like we don't allow political brinksmanship uh, and and you know uh, you know this shenanigans or whatever. They like use these words that like basically basically describe what the Republicans are doing and saying that Democrats are doing it. So. You know, Republicans are, you know, looks like they're going to be able to hold on to this seat unless there is a court that intervenes, um, basically protecting their endangered incumbents by basic, basically making sure that they don't face any criticism. So 
congratulations, I guess. Uh, this is, uh, yeah, it's really, it's really annoying, really frustrating, and really disappointing. Um, yeah. The lawyer in me, though, KDP needs, like, a checklist of, <laughs> like, an eligibility checklist so that this didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that they mostly were just like, yeah, I don't know. You're right. You're probably right. Um, All right. Next quick hit. The Kentucky Registry of Election Finance, the 60-day prior reports have started coming in. Um, I I do know that some candidates are late with them because the KREF website is (laughs) non-functional. I I hope to get into that. I hope to get into these reports sometime soon. But Joe Sanka already has something up about them. So if you want to read about the money, uh, it's at the Courier-Journal's website. Lastly, uh, Democratic candidate for Louisville mayor Craig Greenberg has said that he will render inoperative guns that are confiscated by LMPD. I thought this was kind of an interesting story. So and, and I think, you know, if Greg, if Craig Greenberg manages to get elected, this is kind of emblematic of of our future in the next you know four years or so. Currently. The law is that any guns that are confiscated by LMPD have to be sent to the Kentucky State Police and it's state policy to auction those guns off um, as like basically a fundraiser. And there has been some significant reporting done that those guns then are used to perpetuate crime with gun guns, those same exact guns in Louisville later. Um, and so, it, you know, it's been something that a lot of global Democrats have said is like, why are we putting guns back on the street? Why can't we just take the guns off the street and then just like not have them be sold? That's not the state policy. So what Craig Greenberg is saying he's going to do is just like render the guns inoperative. I don't know how you do that. Take the hammer out. I don't know how guns work. Uh, basically make it so that the gun does not operate and then turn it over to the Kentucky State Police who can then, you know, auction it off as a non-functional gun if they want to, but basically trying to do what he can to prevent these guns to be be used in future crimes. Um, this is likely to set off uh, some sort of like brinksmanship between the city and state um, where you know, oh, now Robert's saying brinksmanship. Well, I think I had said it before, so I had it on the mind. <laughs> I but, know, but you're talking about Republicans. <laughs> yeah, we're all brinksmen here. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, no, Greenberg's scheme is legal under current law, but it's likely that the state legislature, if they see that Louisville is like actually enacting some sort of gun policy, will be like, no, yeah. you cannot do that, um, and we'll overrule them. We will see, though, um, and, and then you know the way that they write the law may leave room for Craig Greenberg to do something even trickier. So, you know, that's probably what we're in store for over the next four years with the city of Louisville and the state of Kentucky increasingly at odds with the policies that they want to pursue. So um, anyways, um, I think that this is good. I think it's a cool idea. Um, I hope that it gets implemented um, by the mayor, whoever it is. All right. Woof. uh, Jasmine, we have made it to the end. Uh, of this part of the show. So let's get to our interview with Kat Leonard. Go ahead. Catherine Leonard is the Democratic nominee for House District 25, which includes part of Hardin County, including most of Elizabethtown. She is a native of Hardin County and owns a small business in Elizabethtown now. This is her first run for public office. So Catherine Leonard, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, we're really thrilled to have you. So the E-Town seat, which has been District 25 for a long time, uh, it's seen a few competitive races, but but Democrats actually even failed to field a candidate in this district back in 2020. You know, you made sure that that didn't happen again here in 2022. So just tell us a little bit about the story. How did you end up running for this race in the first place? Did anybody ask you to do it? Was it all your idea? How long have you wanted to go into public service? That kind of stuff. 
well, as I like to joke, I opened my big fat mouth. I voiced my frustration <laughs> and <laughs> I voiced my frustration on Twitter in uh, 2020 that no one had filed to run against the incumbent. Uh, and a lawyer who has been one of my closest friends for over two decades uh, encouraged me to run against him this next time. Um, he decided not to run again this year. He would have been drawn into the 18th district after redistricting. And so and unless he'd been willing to fight his party on that, which I, I don't think he was. Um, so uh, I, I wasn't sure at first if I was going to be in the 25 uh, district either. Um, and as it turns out, the farm across my back fence is in the 18th. So it's a really close line <laughs> on that one. Uh, the deadline uh, to file approached last December. I kept watching the Secretary of State's website, uh, checking each day to see if a Democrat filed to run. And then with only a week left to go, there were two Republicans in the race, but no Democrats. So I put my name out there. Um, as you noted, I'm a native of the county and I moved back here in 2017 after having lived and worked in the Lexington and Covington areas previously. Hardin County is my home and this is a very exciting time to be here. Big things are ahead uh, uh, for the, the next several years. Uh, thanks in large part to the Ford EV battery plants which are coming here uh, under construction only five minutes drive from my house. Um, and there will be thousands of people relocating here from all across the state and all across the country uh, to work there or at the many other new businesses springing up to support them. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is a big time in Hardin County. So we want to talk about your district a little bit. It's it's one of the more compact districts in the state. Um, and even though E-Town, like every other small city in Kentucky, has kind of been split into multiple districts, the 25th does include most of the city and the area north towards Fort Knox. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what it's like running for office in a small city and how that might be different than running in a rural area or like a large urban center? Well, this is my first political campaign, so I couldn't really compare. Uh, but actually with this district, I get both worlds. Uh, some parts of E-Town and Southern Radcliffe are fairly densely populated, so I can mm -hmm. park my car, walk the neighborhood, knock on doors. Uh, other parts of the district, particularly the eastern parts out toward the Nelson and LaRue County lines, are very rural. Uh, so it's harder to get to those voters than it is the ones in town, both in terms of distance and access. Um, one of the driveways I've gone down was nearly more tree root than it was gravel, um, but I, I do drive a small SUV, so I was able to manage it. Um, I do enjoy those one-on-one -on -one interactions. I'm an introvert. I love working from home and I don't like crowds, um, <laughs> but the part of campaigning I really do enjoy is getting to meet the people where they are and talk about what's important to them. Yeah, so Democrats used to really dominate some of these small cities like E-Town, but have kind of lost ground in those areas since the Trump presidency. And so, you know, what are you doing to bring a democratic message to your district um, that people will vote for? Well, I'm running on a campaign of empathy and honesty. Almost everyone I speak to agrees that politics have gotten too mean. Uh, I had an informal meeting with my opponent a few weeks ago and he and I both agreed that neither of us wanted a mudslinging match. Um, I have had people slam the proverbial door in my face when they hear I'm a Democrat. 100% um, of the people who have argued that I don't have the right to control my own body have all been middle-aged men. Um, but I've had a lot of really good conversations, too, uh, including some great exchanges with registered Republicans. 
Uh, I'm actually a former Republican myself. I switched parties uh, when I moved to Northern Kentucky in 2014, but I'd been voting for Democratic candidates in the general since about 20, about 2006. Um, I was voting for the least offensive in the Republican primary. Uh, I believe in compromise and that we have more in common than what divides us. I promise to listen to my constituents and hear what they have to say. I keep a running list of the issues they've brought up in these front porch meetings so I can research the issue. I've, I've always enjoyed research um, and see if there's anything state government can do to help to make it easier, better or to get out of the way if needed. Yeah, I guess you were inspired by uh, Nick Clooney in the 2006 uh, congressional race to, to re-register as a Democrat. That was, uh, I, don't, I, I don't know why I remember that. It's George Clooney's dad running for Congress in that district that year. Um, okay, so we wanted to talk a little bit more about, about issues. So, you know, y- you mentioned already, uh, you know, running and, and talking about, like, the right to an abortion uh, w- with some of the voters at the doors. And, and, you know, you aren't really shying away from progressive positions in your race. You have on your website, you know, what your progressive stance is about reproductive freedom and trans rights and stuff like that, which are are sometimes very hot button issues. Um, But, you know, the thing that you seem to be trying to emphasize, I think, what you have kind of on your splash page and the stuff I see you talking about the most often are are issues like infrastructure and labor rights, especially labor rights. Um, So, you know, how do you find the balance when you're running in a district like E-Town between like talking about these bread and butter economic issues that, that, you know, we really like to focus? on while, you know, making sure that you, you have a, a solid and strong position on these important social issues, but, but, but not getting distracted by those also? Well, um, distraction is, is the right word. Uh, issues like infrastructure, energy, labor rights, those affect pretty much everyone, while the people that seem to be the angriest about reproductive freedom and trans rights are the ones largely unaffected by those issues. Often they're the same people who complain about government interference or overreach. Uh, conservative media weaponizes those issues to get their followers angry enough to go out and vote against their own best interests to keep putting people in office who give tax breaks to private jet owners and gut spending on education and other public services. Uh, a lot of what I see is voter apathy. I've knocked on doors for some voters and found there were two or three other adults living at the same address who had never voted because they never saw a need. Uh, But I think the Dobbs decision has shown a lot of people, particularly young women, that remaining on the fence is no longer an option. So what I try to do is to make people aware of what good governance looks like. They don't notice it. They don't notice when clean water flows through the tap, but they do notice when the water flow is weak or muddy. Uh, They seldom give a thought to workplace safety regulations and expect the products and food they buy to be safe. Now, they'll notice good governance and action in the aftermath of a natural disaster, but they'll especially notice it if a disaster response is mismanaged. Uh, Kentucky is a commonwealth, and that means using the common wealth of the people to provide for the common good. Yeah, no, that's that's a good answer. I think that you're 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 doing the best uh, that anybody uh, can hope to do about these issues, and and you know we're talking about all of them, and, and and doing the best that we can to to make sure that we focus focus on what voters are are most passionate about. Um, but you know, y- you mentioned 
in 2020 being upset that Democrats didn't field a candidate. And, and I'm kind of interested, like, what issues m- made you passionate about about politics in the first place? Like, what issues um, were were the Republicans focusing on that you didn't think need to be focused on? What issues did you hope the Democrats uh, would, would uh, you know, focus on? And, and what are the issues that really animate you that if you make it to Frankfurt, you, you expect to be a leader on and, and that you expect to uh, sponsor legislation around um, in Frankfurt? Well, uh, as I said earlier, when I knock on doors, I'm taking care to listen to my future constituents to find out what it is that they need. Uh, My areas of interest are related to my own background and expertise. I have a a full-time job in the automotive recycling industry, so that kind of marries the whole technology, small business, infrastructure, and green, you know, and environmental regulation kind of deal. Um, I'm happy to take the lead on an issue outside of that focus if my constituents have asked me for help. Um, and aside from that, I'm 38. Uh, I'm a founding member of the Hardin County Young Democrats, and I hope to encourage, you know, leading by example, um, more young Democrats to consider running for state and local office. No, yeah, that's great. I think that that would be awesome. I think that that's a, an age group that's really underrepresented. You know, I think that uh, there was just something I saw today about how old our representation is getting um, in all levels of government. Um, there are a few young Democrats that are, in, are elected in Frankfurt, but very few that are in rural areas and, and very, very few who are in rural areas or less not urban areas and are Democrats. Um, so it would be really great to see that that uh, type of person represented as well. Um, you, you mentioned that you had a full time job, but you also are a small business owner, which is not something that's unusual. There's a lot of people like that who have a, a full time job that helps them pay the bills, but have a passion that they pursue that um, they, they make a little money from that, that, you know, they have to intersect with the government. In, in some form of ways, especially with the tax system uh, and, and just kind of regulations around that. And, and I'm just curious to know, you know, as a small business owner, um, are, are there parts of your experience that will inform your service uh, if you make it to the legislature in Frankfurt? Um, well, the business that I own is a sole proprietorship, so I haven't had as much exposure to the tax system as someone who has a payroll might have. Uh, but I think there's... Um, And I'm terrible at statistics, but I I recall seeing something uh, that the vast majority of small businesses in Hardin County have four or fewer employees. Um, And and there are a lot of small businesses in Hardin County. Um, The experience I have had with it is a lot like many small business owners have had. Um, The whole tax system can be incredibly confusing. Uh, and just getting started can be intimidating enough to scare some people away from even trying it. Um, my business has two branches, the freelance web and graphic design services on one side and uh, art and handcrafted items on the other. Uh, there was some initial confusion when I got started with the former due to changes in which services were considered taxable. Uh, they were taxable from July 2018, then they weren't starting in July 2019, but now they're going to be taxable again starting next year. Um The latter branch is the kind of business a lot of women end up starting, a so-called side hustle. Um, And a lot of people trying to start their own businesses get taken advantage of by multi-level marketing schemes, or they run afoul of regulations they didn't know existed, such as uh, in the cottage food industry and all the labeling that's required with that. Uh, In my full-time job, I interact daily with small business owners all throughout North America. And in full disclosure, uh, because I'm running on a campaign of empathy and honesty, after all, 
I do web and graphic design work through my employer on behalf of several trade organizations who engage in lobbying work in Kentucky and other states uh, to try to ensure the regulations surrounding automotive recycling are environmentally responsible, but not overly burdensome on the recyclers themselves. Not every small business is lucky enough to be able to join a trade organization to lobby on their behalf, much like not every employee is fortunate to have a union to represent them. Uh, so if there's anything I can do as a legislator to combat abusive and predatory practices, reduce legalese, or make resources available to entrepreneurs to help them navigate their industry-specific regulations, or to improve the environment for organized labor, uh, I'd be glad to look into it. Yeah, so before we let you go, um, just tell us how people can get in touch with you, how they can help out with your campaign. Um you know, how can they get to know you? Uh, visit cat4ky.com, K-A-T, the number four, K-Y.com. You can donate to my campaign, request a yard sign, volunteer your time. Uh, I'm planning to add a calendar to it soon. And since I'm my own web designer, I <laughs> am the sole person responsible for making sure that gets put up. Um, but I'll, I'll be adding that calendar where people can find out what events I'll be going to in, in the the Hardin County area, and they can then make plans to meet me there. I'm also active on Twitter and am happy to engage with people on there. All right. Well, Catherine Leonard, thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKYPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter with our show notes in it. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week. <laughs>